This is the Real Estate Foundation, your show for massive action with proven results. Raise your life and your legacy with real estate. If you're not using retirement funds to invest in real estate, you're leaving capital on the table. With a self-directed IRA from Advanta IRA, retirement funds can be used to invest in rental properties, rehab projects, private loans, multifamily syndications, and much more. Advanta's IRA's dedicated one-on-one account managers make the investing process fast, easy, and reliable for you and your investors. Plus, if you're self-employed, Advanta IRA offers a low-cost QRP or solo 401k plan so you can maximize retirement savings, invest in real estate, and avoid UBIT tax. If you're raising capital or have a network of passive investors, Advanta IRA can help you unlock the trillions of dollars that sit in retirement accounts. Whether it's that fixer up or down the street or a large multifamily property, make sure you or your investors never miss out on another investment opportunity. Go to AdvantaIRA.com backslash REI today to learn more. That's AdvantaIRA.com backslash REI. Hello again and welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast with Jason and Peely. You are stuck with Jason today, but you are in good hands because we have an awesome guest for you, Brian Burke. Hey, Brian, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing great. And Brian Burke is the president and CEO of Praxis Capital Inc., a vertically integrated real estate private equity investment firm. Praxis operates on multifamily platforms, currently managing active syndications for the acquisition of multifamily, single family, and opportunistic residential assets in U.S. growth markets. Brian's acquired over $400 million in real estate over a 30-year real estate investment career, including over 2,500 multifamily units and more than 700 single-family homes with the assistance of proprietary software that he wrote himself. Brian has subdivided land, built homes, and constructed self-storage, but he really prefers to reposition existing properties. So, I mean, we, we got a lot we, we can un, unbundle there, but let's take it back. Where was the point that you said, all right, this real estate thing, I, I like it. I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to really move with this real estate thing. Yeah. You know, I, uh, you know, when I first started, it was kind of on a whim and I was like 20 something years old. I didn't know what I was doing. So, you know, then it was, uh, it, it was more of just what I thought would be a cool idea. And then it took about, yeah, I'd say eight years before I really decided that it was really something I should spend some time and focus on. So I, I really did, you know, about eight years in, I, I started focusing on it. That would have been around, you know, 1997 or so, I guess. And then, um, you know, spent about three years really building the business. And, you know, about three or four years later, I was able to quit my job and focus on it full time. And that was like around 2001 and never looked back. So we're going on about 18 years now of uh, doing nothing but real estate. Oh, I love it. I love it. And you've done so much over, you know, the 18 years. When you took that step out from the job, what was the first, we'll say, space of real estate that you were really diving into? You know, at first it was all single family fix and flip, you know, buy a house, fix it up and resell it and make profit. Uh, you know, that was really the, the bread and butter of this business, you know, all the way until around 2003 or four when the market was so overheated that even that strategy started to make a lot less sense. Took a couple of years kind of pulling back because um, there was really nothing that, you know, really was uh, was looking good enough to buy. 
And then uh, the market completely collapsed. That changed everything. It was time to dive right back in full speed and, you know, immediately started flipping about 100 houses a year, wow. uh, you know, and, and built, a, built a pretty incredible business doing that for a while. So with 18 plus years in this, you've seen a lot of different market dynamics. What has been something of a success strategy you used to implement to really have the sustainability? Well, I just look at real estate investment as a landscape of a, of a meandering stream in a meadow, right? And, and the stream kind of curves left and it curves right. Uh, you know, the current will speed up and slow down. And, you know, the, the only thing I can guarantee is that if you row in a straight line, you'll run aground. So what you have to do is you have to be able to steer. And, you know, when the stream moves right, you move right. When it moves left, you move left. When it speeds up, you enjoy the ride. When it slows down, you're real careful. Uh, and, and if you can kind of employ that and, you know, and alter your, your business strategy to conform to what the market is telling you you should be doing, you can survive in any market. When you were talking first about how when you first started in real estate, you, you spent, you know, three or four years basically building your business, that usually comes later. Was that, is that, was that a natural approach? You said, okay, I got to focus on the business first, where so many people fall into that trap of just really getting out there and trying to do it and then realizing that it's not really a business? Yeah, you know, I, I, I already had spent eight years doing that by the time I spent my Got four it. years uh, you know, really trying to build the business. You know, it's like I spent eight years kind of floundering around and then you're like, you know, how am I really going to systematize this and make a business out of it? And that's when I spent an inordinate amount of time just doing like writing software and developing systems and, you know, really figuring out what my strategy was going to be. And then, uh, you know, in that four years, I, I built it into a business and it turned into one that has, uh, has never looked back. And so you moved from single family and you really jumped large into to multifamily today. What was that? Was that market driven or was that just tired of dealing with so many houses spread over so many areas? What, what was the dynamic? She said, okay, enough's enough. Yeah, it was twofold. I mean, you know, it, it, it way, way early on about uh, 19 years ago, in fact, I made my first multifamily investment and, you know, it was, uh, you know, just kind of a wealth building strategy, right? You know, you do a 1031 exchange out of a couple houses, you buy an apartment building instead and you're getting some scale. And, you know, at the time I was just looking for scale. What I didn't realize is that, you know, it was going to scale the way it did. And, and the catalyst for that, which is, uh, which is kind of a second, you know, a second aha moment was, in the, in, the, in the midst of all this uh, chaos, when the market turned down, we were raising an incredible amount of capital to do our single family business. But at the same time, we knew that it was a real short lived business plan, right? I mean, you know, the, there's only going to be foreclosures in this quantity for so long. And then what are we going to do? You know, we've got all these investors and, you know, what next? And, you know, multifamily is really a scalable and sustainable business. And, and it also is very capital intensive business. So we found that the two actually fit really well together. And if we uh, really focused our strategy on multifamily, we had the investor base to get it started. And, and that's exactly what happened. And, you know, it started with one and then it was two and then it was a lot more. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And so with everything that's happened, talk to us a little bit about how your business looks today. Well, today, you know, we're, you know, over 2,500 units, we've raised over a hundred million dollars from investors, uh, you know, the hard way, you know, a, a few dollars at a time. And, uh, you know, we're, we're growing rapidly. We'll, we'll have closed on uh, the acquisition of about a thousand units in the last 12 months. Uh, we currently have about 700 units in contract to acquire. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just, it's moving and we'll, we'll probably do even more next year. 
Huh, I love this. And so there's a couple of different ways we can go, but I, I want to touch on the hundred million raise the hard way. So you look back at that, right? And so you, you've done it. So with that said, when you look back on that, what lessons or what key points could you give for people that are maybe looking how to get out there and, and raise their first amount or they've done small raise and they're looking to really scale up their raise potential? Man, you know, there's so many pieces of advice in that. That's a real loaded question because it, it depends so much on what someone's position is. If you're looking to raise your first few dollars and, you know, and you're kind of stumbling and, you know, not getting a lot of traction, you're probably fishing in the wrong pond. You really have to uh, go to people who already trust you for some other reason. Someone can't invest with you because of your extensive real estate track record. If you don't have one, yeah. they'll only invest with you because they already trust you for some other reason, because you're a blood relative or you're their lifelong best friend, or, you know, they've known you for years at the rotary club, you know, whatever the heck it is, you know, that's really your pond to get you started. And don't worry about how small the deal is. I mean, it might be where you're, you know, the first fund I, I raised, I raised it from my coworkers. My minimum investment was $5,000. And, you know, that was literally, it got me started. And without having done that, I would absolutely not be where I am now. Yeah. And that's awesome points, right? And it's exactly right. If you don't have the experience, but you have to find the experience where you can put out the experience somewhere else with the group who knows you. Yeah. Key points right there. And you got a thousand units that you've closed on the last 12 months. You got 700 in the pipeline here. You hear so many stories. People are running for the hills right now. They're, they're turning the other way. Oh, you know, something's going to happen. We've been hearing it for three years now and you're, you're all in right now pushing forward. How are you finding investments that are, you feel are the right fit for your metrics? And of course, being cognizant of where we are in the market cycle. Well, there's two things. One is I look in areas where I feel there's resiliency. So, you know, I want to see, a, I want to be in a market that has uh, population growth, job growth, and income growth. If I have all three of those pieces, even an economic blip, recession, downturn, whatever you want to call it, uh, will have a different scale of impact than it would on a community that's already hurting and suffering. So I look at, I look at not just the economic cycle, I look at a demographic cycle. I want to, I want to see a, an area that has demographic growth. And if I can see that, I can, I can hedge myself. And then, you know, this, that's kind of the market selection side. And then, you know, the asset side is it, it really just comes down to sourcing opportunities directly uh, off market uh, from sellers and through brokers. And, and really most of it comes through our broker relationships. And, you know, we've positioned ourselves to be very easy to work with and we're closers. We don't screw around. We don't retrade, uh, you know, and word gets around in the brokerage community and, and, you know, they like their job to be easy and they want to bring their best deals to buyers that they are confident will execute without giving them a lot of problems. And, and that's us. I love it. And for practice capital, is there, is there a key business philosophy that you take with these assets? Are you doing, you know, heavy value ads? Is there, is there that secret sauce that you put into your properties that you know is a repetitive process for you? Yeah, we have a central, essentially a formula uh, on our uh, renovations. They, they all look a, very similar to one another. You know, we use similar finishings from one property to the next. Is that the single family um, flipping business, getting that, putting that into motion? It's exactly where it comes yeah. from. Yeah, it's exactly where it comes from. And, you know, we're, we're basically, we're doing the same thing. We're flipping apartments instead of flipping houses. And, but the flip isn't a sale. The flip is a rental, right? So you're taking a lower valued rental, you're flipping it and renting it at a higher price. It's the same exact concept. It's just doing it at a larger scale and just, you know, in a little bit different way. 
Yeah. And that's, that's sweet. Even thinking of, like on that concept, right. And even talking to that for that note, right. You are really just flipping the units just on a, on a larger, grander scale. And it gives you the economies of scale. Um, from your perspective, where are you pushing now with these next units coming online? Are, are you staying in our markets? Are you moving across various markets? And maybe I'll, I'll even ask the first question. Are you heavily centralized in one market or spread in many different areas you feel are, have opportunity? We're, we're a little bit of both. We're spread in areas that we feel have a lot of opportunity. However, we've found, you know, a high degree of success in, in some areas more so than we have in others. And, you know, part of that is relationships. Part of that is just the quantity of product, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, it's like Salt Lake City is a great market, right? But it's like there's so little multifamily product there that, you, you know, you don't have a high degree of transaction volume. So no one's right. going to go in there and in a couple of years accumulate several thousand units. It's just yeah. not that easy to have that happen. Uh, but we did that in Atlanta. You know, we've acquired, I think, uh, almost 1800 units in Atlanta in, you know, about 18 months. So, you know, that was, uh, you know, there's a lot of multifamily units in Atlanta though. So, you know, there's a lot to choose from. Uh, but we're looking at, you know, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida, Carolinas, uh, Nashville, you know, all those kinds of markets really strong population growth, job growth, and income growth. So from a property side, or we'll say an underwriting on an underwriting level, what are some of the key metrics that, that are very important for you, for you guys to green light a project? Well, probably the most important is lift. How much rent, how much rent lift can we get? And this comes back, you know, this is a little bit of a, an interesting way of thinking about, it. you know, a lot of people want to think about cap rate and this and that and whatever, yeah. but this comes, uh, it drives back to my, a history of flipping homes because when you're going to buy a house with the intent of reselling it, what you want to know is how much more can you sell it for over what you bought it for? And so this is kind of the same concept in, in multifamily. How much more can you rent it for than what it's currently being rented for? And if there's a wide enough Delta there, then the returns are going to take care of themselves in most cases, as long as you buy it for the right price. So it's, it's a little bit about rent lift, uh, I use a uh, I use a formula that uh, that I I, I kind of think I invented myself and named it myself called uh, development uh, development lift and it's kind of a complicated formula but ultimately at the end of the day what you're calculating is what's the stabilized value uh, over the acquisition value and what's the delta between those two numbers and you know if you can get a twenty percent lift in value. Uh, upon stabilization, which is usually in three to four years, you're going to do pretty well. And so, you know, really what it bakes down to is an IRR, a cash on cash return and a, an equity multiple. Uh, you know, but again, those, those take care of themselves as long as you can add enough value. And so this developmental lift, is that, is that your, I guess, your transition of, a, of an ARV from single family homes into multifamily product? Is that, is that a similar, not, not of course, it's of course, I'm sure more complicated, but is that the same thought process going in there? In a sense, yes. It, it's really about it's really about establishing an ARV and determining the delta between that ARV and your and your going in price. That's uh, it, the formula isn't exactly calculated that way. It's calculated differently, but uh, but ultimately that's the end result. That's what you're measuring. Is you're measuring how much lift you're getting out of uh, out of the money you're putting in the property. Got it. And with so much happening and, you know, you're bringing on 1800 units the last 18 months in Atlanta, just what we talked about before. What what does your team look like? What are the key components of your team to allow you to scale to this capacity? 
so we got kind of two branches of our team. So we have, uh, uh, you know, we have like the acquisitions, uh, dispositions and capital branch, and then we have the operations branch and, and they're two kind of separate, uh, completely separate, um, branches of the same tree. So on the acquisitions, capital and dispositions branch, it's a, it's a relatively small team. I've got myself, I've got a chief investment officer, uh, I have a CFO, I have a, uh, a vice, senior vice president of investor relations. So in those roles, we've got someone out there, you know, looking for real estate, someone out there helping to evaluate that real estate, uh, someone out there to talk to investors to help raise capital. Uh, I've got an analyst that you know builds the, uh, the the models with the rent rolls and T12s and that sort of stuff, and that's really all all we need. And you know that's that that team will will carry us to probably close to ten thousand units without having to add any headcount. On the other hand, we have the operations team, which you know that's uh, we're vertically integrated, so we have our own property management company. So you know under that arm, I have a, a CEO in charge of my management company. Uh, he's got a, a chief operating officer uh, that's uh, that assists him as well as um, a regional manager, um, a, a corporate controller, an accounting team. And then you've got an entire uh, army of site staff. Uh, so, you know, I think right now we're over 50 employees on that side of the, of the operation. And as our unit count grows, the headcount will also grow as well. Yeah, and that's, that's sick. So I, I'm sure I know this answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Did, did you put the team together with the anticipation of growing out or have you added as you've scaled? Uh, we, well, a little bit of both, you know, we've, uh, gosh, this has been, it's 30 years in the making. And I think we were at about year 27 when we really built out and had the whole thing dialed in. So, you know, about the last three years is when we really started to kick it into overdrive. And, you know, the way this happened is, uh, is I, I got just by stroke of luck, uh, I, I had a guy that I knew, or I didn't know, but we had a mutual connection and, uh, we got introduced and he had two colleagues of his. So the three of them were all uh, in the institutional world as competitors working for various big name firms that, you know, a lot of your listeners have probably heard of, uh, you know, and you know, the real big guys, you know, with, uh, with tens and tens of thousands of units, these three guys had a hundred thousand units of multifamily experience between the three of them. And, uh, you know, they joined up with Praxis three years ago and helped build out this, uh, this whole infrastructure. Uh, one of them is the CEO of our management company. One is our CIO and the other is our CFO. And so now we, we you know, we built the, the mousetrap and then what we had to do was set it in motion. And, you know, that meant, you know, starting to buy properties and add them into the portfolio. And, you know, we began doing that and kind of grew the rest of the headcount on the operational side as we grew. And the, the, the need or the, the want to have in-house uh, property management, was that, was that something that happened based on design or was it just by necessity? Uh, it's, uh, it's both. It's really design and it's a specific intent. And what I mean by that is uh, there's, there's a, on the design aspect, we get uh, better control over the entire process if we have it all in-house. Hmm. We have better integrated accounting if we have it all in-house. We're all under one system. All the properties are interconnected with one another, you know, on an on a IT level. So, you know, we've got robust institutional grade uh, 
uh, infrastructure for accounting and property management. Hmm. Uh, but at the same time, there was also, you know, this, um, this other element, which is that we're seeking institutional capital partners to help fund uh, our acquisitions and institutional capital partners have come to recognize over the years that groups that manage their own assets tend to perform better and therefore they have a preference towards funding groups that are vertically integrated in anticipation of seeking that capital. We got ahead of it and vertically integrated early on. Huh. I did not know that point. That's a great point right there, right? Especially if you're going to scale that capacity and that's where your in run is to be set up, but it does give you the control, right? Usually, you know, the property management company, you're using third party management. I mean, that's your face. They have to implement your plan and, and either they give you good guidance that they can or they can, and, or they just ultimately cannot do your plan. And, and then you're stuck either, you know, dealing with that or having to just go to another source to hopefully they can implement the plan correctly. So having it in house, um, how do you deal with being in, in so many different markets? Well, I guess, let me take that question back. How do, you, how do you deal with when you do move into a new market, just setting up those systems with that in-house property management company? Well, that's, that's the, the nice part for me is by having an expert uh, in charge of our operations team. I don't have to worry about that. That's his problem. But the good news for me is that he's done this before. And this is the sixth time he's set up national multifamily management footprints. Wow. Uh, for various institutional groups. Uh, you know, most recently, I'm sure you've probably heard of Grubb and Ellis. He was the president of their multifamily management company. In fact, he founded it and took that national. Uh, and, you know, that's the kind of skill and experience that we needed to be able to build that out. So you got to have somebody that's been there and done that and already has worked the kinks out. Uh, you know, so we've, we've got the systems already in place. We, we set the corporate culture. Uh, you know, we handpick the teams and, and, uh, and we have the network to do it from. Yeah. And I love that. And with your, your growth that you're looking to expand into in the next 12 months, is there, how are you using, of course, the interest rate environment to your favor? Well, you know, it, actually kind of recently it, it hasn't been working to our favor. Spreads have been up about 30 or 40 basis points in the last two weeks. So, uh, you know, interest rates are, uh, are an interesting moving target, but, you know, our modeling tools are very sophisticated. So, you know, we're able to model to any number of, uh, of capital stack design. We can model to fixed rate debt. We can model to adjustable rate debt. We have forecasts going out 10 years for LIBOR on a monthly basis um, that we get from Bloomberg so that we're able to, to say, okay, if we got a floating rate debt, what exactly would we expect, uh, you know, that debt service to look like? Uh, you know, and we, we model out various debt scenarios and, you know, if interest rates go up, it just simply changes the output in the model. And if we're trying to solve for the same return, it means you lower your price. So, you know, everything is just a function of solving for a return and, you know, uh, interest rates are just one of those variables. When you're considering, and I guess the, the first question would be is, is there a, a standard hold period or a standard procedure for, for the length of time you're looking to hold these properties? I wouldn't say there's a standard, you know, I, I um, you know, I came from the world of flipping, right? The first thing I did in real estate was I flipped real estate. The next thing I did in real estate is I set up a buy and hold fund and we started buying single family homes and holding them as rentals, you know? So for my whole career, it's always been like, are you a buy and flip guy or a buy and hold guy? And you know, for multifamily, I'm neither in multifamily. I've coined the term that I'm a buy and watch investor. 
And what I do is I buy the asset, I fix it up, and then I watch the market for the optimal time to exit. And that might be as soon as I finish my value add improvements, it might be five years from now. You know, if there's an adverse market cycle, it might be 10 years from now before we can sell and achieve the results that we're looking to achieve. So, so really it's just a, the, the market will dictate to us when it's time to leave. And we'll, we'll listen to those cues and, and we'll do what the market says. Having said that, generally we've found that the best time to exit is usually around year three, somewhere between year three and year five, right after we've completed our value add improvements. And again, if you think about like the hockey stick of, um, uh, on a graph of, uh, of, of rental income, and if you know you, you increase it really rapidly in the beginning because you've improved the real estate, but after that, there's an inflection point where the market, sh where the, the business plan shifts from something that you're doing to something that the market is doing for you. And when we reach that inflection point, usually to me, it's time to get out. We've done what we can do. I don't want to leave my, uh, the rest of it up to the market. Let's, let's get out and let somebody else worry about that. So usually that three, four, five year point. And, and when you're looking at your exit, do you have any good strategies? And I'm not even sure if you're looking at it this way, but for determining where you're going to stand on an exit cap? Well, you know, when you're, uh, when you're selling, it's pretty easy. You can look and see what the comps are doing. What's the, you know, what cap rates or properties seem to be trading at at that time. But to forecast an exit cap up in the beginning is a little bit art and a little bit science. Yeah. And, you know, what we do is we, we use a starting rate of, you know, where are cap rates today? What would be an exit cap rate of a stabilized asset today? And then we look at what do we have to, or what do we think is going to happen to cap rates in the future? Now, our opinion is cap rates are going to move upward. Uh, how soon and how fast, nobody really knows. We tend to use a tenth of a percent a year. Uh, so if we're selling in year five, our exit cap's a half percent higher than our forecasted, you know, day one exit cap. Uh, and if it's 10 years, it's a, a full percentage point. But sometimes we alter that too. I mean, there's reasons why you think that you might have a compressed cap rate on exit because there's a specific value add play. Like let's say you're coming out of a low income property that can roll to market rate, for example. Uh, or you think that there's a reason why cap rates might deflate uh, greater than that rate because you know you think that the market may become less desirable or something in that area as time goes on. Yeah, and so, and that's just great feedback right there, right? So, and I, I like the term how you said it's just, it's part art and part science because there, there's no steadfast rule because I, I hear some rules kicked around, but ideally you, you just have to identify so many different factors could be happening. And I think the low-income tax credit example is, is super, right? If you have that to your advantage, well, that's going to be a viable resource why someone's going to want to pay you more for the product. So looking at your time and your day, you, you've accomplished so much. You're still, you know, you're, you're, you're in year 30 with it. You Huge team is built around you. How are you being able to be most productive in your day? Well, uh, I guess I don't have to be all that productive. Um, you know, I've got I've got a, a great team, and and uh, you know everybody is everybody's working really hard, and um, and we're all accomplishing what needs to be accomplished. So you know, I, I think a lot of my productivity comes from efficiency. You know, we use technology pretty heavily. Uh, I live literally like th four minutes from my office, so I don't have a long commute. Uh, you know, every, it's all by design. I try to be very efficient. I, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time traveling around. You know, I've, my chief investment officer is out looking at real estate. I'm in here in the office crunching numbers and, uh, you know, and, and kind of orchestrating the whole thing. So, 
Uh, it's just really about using technology to your advantage and, and being very efficient with your time, coupled with the fact that, you know, my day usually ends about 11 p.m. <laughs> got it. I got it. Well, I'd say, you know, we've had a couple hundred episodes and it's probably our best answer yet. I don't have to be because I've built a team, right? And that, that's what everybody's trying to do here is be efficient by building a team around and I can handle it. And you come in and tackle the important things when you can tackle them and when you need to tackle them. So kudos to you. Is there an end game or is there, where, where does practice capital go? I mean, where, where is the ultimate vision for the company? Well, you know, who knows? Um, you know, our, our kind of soft target goal right now is to hit 10,000 units. Uh, I expect we'll get there. You know, I wouldn't be shocked if sometime we aren't talking about 20,000 or 25,000 units, but you know, I was just having a conversation the other day with my CFO and, you know, he was recalling back to a time when, you know, he was, he knew this other group, they were about a 5,000 unit local operator, you know, and he's like, gosh, you know, those guys, they've, they're, they're now on 200,000 units. And, you know, it's, and he's like, they never saw it coming. You know, it's just like one thing led to another and, you know, who knows where this will go. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I plan to be here for a little while longer, you know, I'm, I've been doing it for 30 years, but I'm not done yet. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. We'll, we'll see what the market allows us to do. Yeah, that's awesome. And do you, you have a, some words you live by or, or a company motto or slogan? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Like that too. I like that too. I don't need mottos and slogans. You know, it's like we, we, yeah. what we want to do is we want to, we want to be really good real estate operators. We want to, uh, you know, we want to make smart decisions and make good buys and not spend too much time fooling around with figuring out what kind of slogan we want to have. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's, we'll take it to this. We, what are, is there something that stands out as a key learning lesson you've learned? Just let's just say in multifamily, since you, since you've been in the multifamily arena, going to a large capacity, is there, is there a learning lesson that's really stood out to you that you could share with the listeners? Probably that the world is bigger than you. You know, it's like, uh, you know, people think that, you know, they can, uh, they can manipulate the market or control the market or outsmart the market. Uh, and you know, when things aren't going well in the, in, in the world at large, uh, things aren't going to go well uh, in your multifamily business either. So, you know, underwrite conservatively, plan for downsides, stress test your numbers, run sensitivity analysis, figure out what the worst case scenario is. Stop, uh, stop being so positive about how great the market is and how great real estate is and, and buying with what I call irrational exuberance. You are not a kid in a candy store. You're just a participant in the climate that you're investing in. And you got to make sure that you've, um, you know, accounted for all of those things so that you can enjoy the ride rather than getting slammed by the fall. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And if there's a, a new investor who's looking to start into multifamily, is there a key, I guess, a key piece of advice that you could offer to them for them to start their journey? Yeah, don't worry about how 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 small you start. You know, you don't be thinking that your first deal has to be a hundred units. If your first deal is a single family home or a duplex, that's okay. You're building a track record. Buying something is better than buying nothing, assuming that it's a good enough deal, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, don't get hung up in the go big or go home uh, uh, rumblings that you hear out there in guru land. 
I love that. Well, Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a ton of value for everyone here. Really appreciate your time. For everybody who wants to find more about you, find more about Praxis Capital, what's the best way to connect? Uh, the best way is probably through our website, which is praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. I also participate pretty heavily in the biggerpockets.com forums. Uh, so a lot of people either know me from there or have seen me around or, or whatnot. So, you know, love to answer questions there too. Uh, on, on questions surrounding multifamily and syndication. Yep. Just nothing on company mottos. That's it. That's Good. it. Yeah. yeah I'll, <laughs> I'm not much help for you there. Good. Can't have any value for you. Sorry. Brian, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Had a lot of fun being here. Awesome. Well, this is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Huge thank you to Brian Burke. Huge thank you to you, all of you listening out there. Have a great day. Bye now. If you're not using retirement funds to invest in real estate, you're leaving capital on the table. With a self-directed IRA from Advanta IRA, retirement funds can be used to invest in rental properties, rehab projects, private loans, multifamily syndications, and much more. Advanta's IRA's dedicated one-on-one account managers make the investing process fast, easy, and reliable for you and your investors. Plus, if you're self-employed, Advanta IRA offers a low-cost QRP or solo 401k plan so you can maximize retirement savings, invest in real estate, and avoid UBIT tax. If you're raising capital or have a network of passive investors, Advanta IRA can help you unlock the trillions of dollars that sit in retirement accounts. Whether it's that fixer up or down the street or a large multifamily property, make sure you or your investors never miss out on another investment opportunity. Go to AdvantaIRA.com backslash REI today to learn more. That's AdvantaIRA.com backslash REI. Mm-hmm.